Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. I think this is lesson number four, is it? Yes, lesson number four. This morning, we're going to be going into chapter two. Remember, we've already obviously done chapter one, and we've talked about Matthew's purpose or the Holy Spirit's purpose through Matthew, the writer of this gospel, is to show that this man, Jesus, is in fact God's promised, prophesied Messiah King, who in himself and by himself will do absolutely everything according to God's original purpose that Adam was to have done in establishing the rule and the reign and the presence and the blessings of God upon the earth through the establishment of the kingdom of God, he himself being the king. And so Matthew, you remember we talked about this, will establish this primarily showing that who Jesus is, what he says, and what he does is according to various scriptural references or prophecies that he will share with us throughout the presentation of his account of the life of Jesus. And so we'll see that regularly as it was written to fulfill or as was spoken by the prophet. We'll see those references over and over and over again. And so we've already shared in chapter one the whole background of the first 17 verses. You remember that? The first 17 verses what? Being a collapsing, if you would, of the Old Testament gathering together the entire Old Testament revelation and prophecy and the history of God's work in the Old Testament, collapsing it into 17 verses to say what? This is the one about whom the entire Old Testament is speaking. And so once again, when we study the Old Testament, when you are hearing it, when you are looking at it, when you are reading it, Ask the Holy Spirit to be illumining your mind and your understanding to what the particular passage or passages have to do with Jesus, how they reference Christ, how he fulfills them. What is the relationship between this particular passage and this particular event to the coming of God's Messiah? And so as you do that purposefully, purposefully have that in your mind, you will begin to allow the Holy Spirit to enlarge your view of this grand, grand canyon of our Bible. Rather than to see it as an Old Testament over here, wow, that's old, now what's really going on is the New Testament. No, what's going on is that which has been going on since the very first verse of Genesis, amen? And it will be fulfilled at the end in Revelations 21 and 22. So this morning, we continue to pick up on the theme of the work of God promised and prophesied in Christ. Father... Father, when we read your word and when we see the internal integrity and the comprehensive sameness of revelation, 
Father, a book that was written over thousands of years by 40 authors, most of whom had never met or talked to any of the others. Father, that was written without computers, without modern technology to cause everything to be consistent. And Father, when we open this book and we begin in the beginning and we read the last word at the end which says amen, Father, this is not a book that is authored by humanity. This is a book that is clearly authored by you through humanity to us, for us, for the accomplishment of your purpose. Father, cause this your revelation to be bigger and bigger, grander and grander, mightier and mightier, more effective and more effective in our lives every day as we read, as we pursue you in it, as we study it, as we meditate it upon it, as we memorize it, and as we walk it out in obedience day by day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we go into chapter 2, and we're talking this morning just about the first two verses, and I want to say again that I want to, and I believe the Holy Spirit, hopefully, and I'm in accordance with his will, wants to lay a much more thorough foundation for us than perhaps we have had in the past. And so you'll find that the first four chapters of Matthew, we will kind of crawl along a little bit. And then when we get to chapter 5, we'll start moving along more quickly. Not that that revelation is less important, but I think that much of what we're going to begin to see in chapter 5 and moving forward is going to be a lot clearer to us and a lot more understandable without the kinds of background work that we are doing now. And hopefully the background work that we're doing today and in these several lessons in the beginning will serve to undergird us and to cause whatever we begin to read from Matthew 5 on to have a relevance and a comprehensive understanding that this word from Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation is one word. So let's open our Bibles and I'll just read the first two verses this morning. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So let's parse this a little bit and go through it bit by bit. First of all, the wise men. Who were these men? Now, how many wise men were there? How many wise men were there? How many wise men do we, does tradition say? Three. Why? Because of the numbers of gifts. But how many were there? We simply don't know. What we do know is this, that it was at least two or more. How do I know that? Because the word men is plural. Remember in English? Well, you know, you'd be surprised. I don't know. How do you see that? The Bible doesn't say that. Well, it doesn't. But we should be able to read more correctly. Having had an excellent English teacher, I'm sure all of you had excellent English teachers, and learned the differences between singular and plural. And so plural means what? 
two or more. How many more? We don't know. And so, first of all, it could have been two. The probability is that there were just a handful of these men who were traveling together. The probability is it's more than three. But we don't know, so we don't have to argue about it. But we know at least one thing. It wasn't one. Now, wise men, these simply don't want to go into any background much on this. These men were astrologers. They studied the stars. Now, they didn't do horoscopes like we have today. Horoscope reading and thinking about and looking at every day to find out something about yourself is voodoo, is idolatry, is looking to something other than the word of God for the leading and the revelation of your daily life. Amen? So if any in the room are horoscope watchers and readers, oh, I just do it just to be interesting. Oh, yes. If your husband were looking at some of the pornography on on the Internet just to find it interesting, would you ladies be okay with that? Well, of course not. So you see how Satan hooks. I'm just interested. I'm just curious. I just, I'm just want, yes, go ahead. And boom, I got you. So let's not be that kind of people. Amen. It's just a sidebar that's free. You didn't have to pay for that this morning. They are astrologers, which means this. They are a group of men who studied the stars. And as they studied the alignments of the planets and stars, they did it within the context of knowing something of biblical prophecies. These men knew the Bible. They weren't Jewish, but they knew the Jewish scriptures. Isn't that interesting? They knew the Jewish scriptures. And they knew something was going on from the stars appearing. And they knew something was happening. And so as they see the alignment of the stars in some kind of way, a great light occurs. Now, I don't know what kind of a light it was. You've heard speculations that this planet and that planet lined up and give light. It doesn't matter. Some way, God illumines their hearts and their minds with a revelation. Something is going on. Follow that light. And they come from wherever it is in the east and come all the way to Jerusalem because they have seen a great light. And they asked the question of Herod. Remember Herod? He's called Herod the Great. This is the Herod that built the temple. This is the Herod that built the uh, seaport of Caesarea, Caesarea. Have you ever studied? Herod was an incredible architect, an incredible engineer. We miss that when we read the Bible because we think, well, he was just a nut and he didn't like anybody and he was mean and hateful. And he was those things. But Looking at secular history, Herod was a major figure in the Roman Empire. And Caesarea, which is one of the ports or one of the cities where Jesus spent quite a bit of time, was a major accomplishment where for the first time they developed the ability to pour concrete and have it set underwater. And so this seaport was foundationed in concrete, and all of it was built. And it was a wonderful, huge uh, um, benefit to the Roman Empire. It was an incredible thing. And you remember the temple. He took the temple that had been built under the leadership of, of who? 
Zerubbabel. Remember Ezra and Nehemiah? Remember after the Israelites left Babylonian captivity? The Persians had come in in 583, 536 rather, and to release those Jews who wanted to go back home. And under the leadership of Zerubbabel, they came to Jerusalem and they rebuilt the temple in 55 days, which was, how did they do it that quickly? Well, the Holy Spirit gave them ability. And Herod took that temple. And in order to really ingratiate himself with the Jewish people, he took the temple and he enlarged it and embellished it where it became one of the most fabulous buildings of the ancient world. So this was an incredible temple. And so here's the man who was on the throne. He is the king of Israel, if you would, ruling under the leadership and the authority of Rome. And he hears these men and here's the question. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We've seen his star, huh? Who? What? what did you just ask? Who are you here to see? What star? Well, look, no, no, Numbers 24, 17, and there are other references. It says, a star shall come out of Jacob. Now, Jacob is a word which has to do with what? Israel. Remember, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. A star shall come out of Jacob. And a scepter shall rise out of Israel. What does that mean, a scepter? Remember, a scepter is a staff which represents what? Kingly authority. And so what Numbers is saying here is that the king who will rule over God's people in these latter days will come out of Israel and he will be the ruler. And so when they see the star, they are being led to find who is this king, this ruler, because you see, by now, the house of David, as anybody, as people thought, had been decimated and destroyed. Remember the last king of Judah? Remember his name? Jehoiakim. And he was taken into Babylonian captivity. And as a result of that, Israel has had no other king from the David line, from the Davidic line. It doesn't mean there was not a member of the Davidic line generation after generation because we've seen that. But there was no one visibly on the throne. And so the Messiah who is coming is one who is anticipated to come from the Davidic line. But it looked as if, for all intents and purposes, that prophecy is no longer any good. Something happened because the last king died and there ain't no more kings. What are we doing? What is God doing? Well, he's always working. He's always working. And when it looks like something to the natural mind has not occurred or is occurring or won't occur, it doesn't mean that God is not at work. It means that God is at work, but in a way that we may not discern naturally. Therefore, we seek the answers and we seek the revelation spiritually. Amen. By the Holy Spirit. What star? And this star meant in Micah, what does this star mean in Micah 5.2? That this was being fulfilled. Micah 5.2 is being fulfilled. But you, O Bethlehem, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you shall, for you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient of days. And so the, the Messiah himself is prophesied to come out of Bethlehem. 
And so these men know this, and so they come to Jerusalem to Herod thinking what? If anybody knows where the new king is, who's going to know? Herod. So they come to the king. They don't know that, hey, Herod is not a part of this. They don't understand all the workings here. It could be in their own minds that this is a son of Herod that was born as far as they would understand. All they know is a great ruler is, has been born in, uh, in, in uh, Judea, in Jerusalem. So they go over there and find out, Herod, where is he? In other words, I think what they were really asking, although the Bible doesn't say, where's your boy who's just been born? We've come to worship him. Very interesting. Because Herod didn't know anything about it. Now, what I want to do this morning, I had a whole lot more here to go into this, but I was checked during the week to go into a little detail that we typically wouldn't get. I want to talk about light. Light. Because you see, the emphasis in verses 1 and 2 is upon what? Not the magi, but upon the light. A light from heaven. The light of the revelation of God's presence. That's where the emphasis is in these two verses. The star, the light. Now, biblically, light is associated with several different things, but basically, at least right now, and we'll talk a little bit about its leadership capacity later on, it has to do with God's creative activity, and it also has to do with the visible revelation of the presence of God. And so very often in the Old Testament, even in the New, but especially in the Old, when you see references to light or where there is light, the Bible is inferring something about the creative activity of God and or the visible presence, the manifestation of God and his work. So if you can keep those two issues in your mind as, and as you read the Old Testament, ask the Lord and look at the scriptures and receive revelation. Is this one of those two issues? There is a third issue. It has to do with the leading of God, the light leading the people. And so ask the Lord, are one of these three issues involved in the particular passage that I'm reading? Light is associated first with God's creative activity. So how do you know that? In Genesis 1-1, what does it say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? What does Genesis 1-2 say? And the earth was out form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the spirit or the <sighs> Ruach of God did what? Ruach held him. The Ruach of God moved or hovered upon over the waters, right? Then what does verse 3 say? And God said, let there be light. The visible manifestation of the creative activity of God begins with light. And so with light, God begins to create by the activity of the presence of God in light. So light is associated with create the God's creative activity. Remember that. It is associated with God's creative activity. So Genesis 1-3, let there be light. The creation begins with the appearance of light. Remember in Gen uh, Exodus 20-18, what happens in 20-18? 
Light accompanies the creation of Israel at Sinai. Remember that? The Lord brings the people out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, brings them to the base of the mountains of Sinai, at the base of the mountain Horeb itself. Sinai is more of a mountain range than a particular mountain, although Sinai then becomes synonymous. But you'll see Horeb, H-O-R-E-B, and Sinai. It's synonymous with the same terms. So he brings them to the base of the mountains of Sinai at Mount Horeb. And he gives the law. And then what happens in verse 18 of chapter 20? The lightnings and the thunders and the dark cloud and the booming voice of God personally to the people. And so lightnings are occurring at the top of this mountain as God is speaking forth his word. You shall have no other gods before me. And lightning flashes and thunder and cloud. I mean, it had to have been a very terrifying activity. In fact, next week, Either Evan and I, and we'll have to hear from the Lord who, will be speaking about that particular verse, that particular section of verses. Light. What is happening? It is the activity of God calling a people who were not a people. Remember in First Peter, you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. And he is bringing them together and creating them as his nation. So light is God's creative activity at, uh, at, uh, in Exodus chapter 20, as he gives them the law as the codification <clears throat> of his presence and of how to live in such a way as to manifest his presence. And so light comes forth as an activity of creation. Remember in Acts chapter 9, verse 3? Light. Now, as Saul went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly what? A light flashed from heaven. Remember that? A light shone upon him. And you remember the voice from heaven said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What Paul knew as a zealot, as a Pharisee, he knew this is God speaking to me. He saw the light from heaven. He heard the voice from heaven, which the others around him heard a voice, but it sounded like thunder. It wasn't discernible to anyone else other than the apostle Paul. And he knew God had spoken to him. What was God doing in the coming forth of light upon Paul? What was he doing? He was taking the old Saul, the man of the old creation, the man under Adam, the man of the original creation, fallen man in his sin under the captivity and the rule of Satan. He was taking that man and in a flash... He was recreating him into a new man in Christ. Amen? So what verse does that bring to your mind? Recreating into a new man. He makes him a new creation. What verse is that? 2 Corinthians what? 5.17. So you see, when we read these verses, you begin to understand. Wow, when Paul says... In Christ, we're new creations, and the old has passed away, and behold, all things have been made new. 
This is not just a theological thing for Paul, but when Paul pens those words, I believe, he remembers that way to Damascus and all of a sudden that light shining upon him with such intensity that he goes, if you would, blind for a few days. You remember that. And Ananias has said, the Lord tells Ananias, look, go pray for Paul. And Ananias said, wait, 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 God, wait a minute. I know you're busy. How many of us have to instruct God sometimes when we're praying? And we have to tell God about all the details of something before we ask a qu- uh, prayer. I mean, come on. How many of us have to give God all the details before we ask him for something? Don't we sometimes kind of like have to fill him in? I know, God, that you're busy, but you forgot. Paul is the one who's been killing us. Now, if I go over there and pray for him, I'm going to fall into a trap. And I may be arrested. And I may be tortured to tell who are my compadres. Ananias, he's now my man. He belongs to me. Did you notice that as Paul was going on his way to Damascus, carrying the authoritative papers to arrest Christians in uh, Damascus, did you notice that Paul is not seeking to be saved? When someone tells you, In order to be saved, you have to seek God. And God saves those who are seeking him. Look at the examples of Abraham, Moses, and Paul. And see if you see any evidence in all that these men were preemptively seeking for God. Therefore, he came to them. Just look at the scriptures. And once again, Bill taught this a while back, irresistible grace. God's call, you will see from the scriptures without any elaborate theological discussion, these men were saved by the preemptive initiating decree of God. Amen? The light flashed on Paul, not because Paul had a little candle saying, where are you? Where are you? Here I am, Paul. Thank you. Thank you. You found me, Paul. You found me. Here I am. No, he didn't. He says, Paul, And Paul was saved. It's called being born again. You see, Paul's thought, this experience was also in his mind probably when he dictated in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let there be light, has shown in our hearts with the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Light, the coming forth of the new creation, the new creation. Every one of us were born into the kingdom of God by the light of the revelation of God in us. As he's shown in our hearts to show us the dastardliness and the condemnation of our sin. And then when he showed us that he paid for that sin in his own son at the cross. And then producing in us a desire and a love for his son to which we said yes. It's called being born again. Amen. Now, you may not understand all the vicissitudes of that when it was happening, but that's what was happening. You see, in Ephesians 5, 8, Paul says, walk as children of light. Where there is light, there is the creative activity of God. And so as we are walking as children of light, God is shining through us. We'll see that in Matthew five sixteen when we get there. God is shining through us the revelation of who his son is. 
So in the world, others are seeing that revelation, some externally never to be saved, and then some internally as they are being drawn by God, being drawn by the light into his presence. See, because God is light. Why is this important, light? Because God is light. Why is the light so important? Because God himself is light. He dwells in what? Unapproachable light. Because God is light, the birth of Jesus is attended with and announced by the appearance of light as God's announcement that the new creation has commenced in the birth of his son. So when they see the star, they see more than just a bright light in the heavens. They are seeing the beginning of the creative or recreative or regenesis or regeneration work of God. Finally happening from Genesis 3, 6, when it said, and he ate, when Adam ate. And Adam and Eve, remember, fled from the presence of God. And from that moment, when he ate and moving forward, all those years, all that activity, all those prophecies, all those uh, uh, religious, uh, remember the tabernacle and the sacrifices and the Levitical system and the temple, all that moving forward year after year and the thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of animals and all that blood that was shed, everything moving toward one place. And the Magi see the revelation of that from heaven. That now, now, everything has been fulfilled that has to do with the coming of the birth of the Messiah. And now in his birth, he himself will, and by himself, gather up all of the Old Testament, gather it up in himself. And fulfill it moment by moment, every breath of his body, every heartbeat of his heart, every blink of his eye, every step of his walk, everything, fulfilling everything. And then finally going to the cross. And when he dies, he takes all of that old revelation which had to do with the accomplishment of God's will in this second Adam. And he completes it forever. Amen forever i've said this before and i'll say it again in we are either fully forgiven or fully condemned can you get that in your mind because too many christians are still thinking maybe not fully forgiven or maybe not fully condemned fully forgiven or fully condemned amen we're either in christ or we're not in christ no halfway stuff None of this stuff, as I heard the other day, um, a delightful believer say something to me. And he said, he said in a class a context, I said, we'll talk about that later. He said, well, what happens is people receive Jesus as their Savior and have not yet made him their Lord. No such thing. Jesus is the Lord who saves. No such thing is being Savior without being Lord, and no such thing as he's my Lord without being my Savior. Right? The issue, of dis- yeah, the issue of disobedience is a different issue, but it's not an issue because you've not made him your Lord. You don't make Jesus your Lord. He makes himself 
the Lord of our life. Amen. I don't make him anything. I don't make him my Savior. I don't make him my Lord. He makes me, and he does all the work in me. Amen. It is his work. So let's be careful of our theology. And then someone shares something like that, be in a very kind and careful way, in a real smile on your face, say, well, I'm not sure. I don't I quite disagree. Could we talk later? So he said that in the context of a men's Bible study. And I said, okay, well, I, 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 not, I don't agree with that, but we can talk later when we get into other subjects. But it sounds good to people, doesn't it? He's my Savior, and I didn't make my Lord yet. Well, let's move along, Davidson. The light of God's presence. Light is also associated with the presence of God with his people. Remember Mount Sinai. The Lord brings his people to the mountain. Remember that. And then what happens? The ta- after the giving, the dwelling, the tabernacle and the prototype of Eden. Remember, tabernacle is a prototype of Eden. Tabernacle is now God's dwelling upon the earth as Eden was to be God's dwelling upon the earth with his people. That's what Eden, the Garden of Eden, was to be. God's presence upon the earth dwelling and fellowshipping with his people in this garden. And as Adam and Eve and their progeny would continue in obedience and continue to multiply in this kind of fellowship, the entire earth then would become the presence of God, his footstool, in a very visible and real way. Well, then after the fall, God constructs a tabernacle as a temporary dwelling and then the temple. And those two buildings are the place of God's dwelling with his people. So it's a prototype of Eden. See it for what it is. God is saying here is a, a temporary structure that takes the place of the Garden of Eden that I am now fulfilling In part, my purpose as established in Eden, I am moving my purpose forward. But as I do it, I will be among my people in the tabernacle, and then I'll be among my people in the temple. And then one day I'm going to be among my people in John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. No more need for a building. We now are tabernacle with God in a risen, ruling, returning man. Aren't you glad about that? You see. So what happened in the tabernacle, you remember, is the furniture was to be built and constructed. And so in chapter 25, the Lord begins to give Moses the instruction. First of all, I want you to build the Ark of the Covenant. You remember some of that. We went through it extensively. Then the next thing, I want you to build the table of showbread. And it's going to be in the holy place, Ark of the Covenant, the most holy place. And then as you enter in, the table of showbread is over here on the right. And it's a table which has six, two rows of six loaves of bread, 12 loaves of bread, each one representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, fine. Now, on the left-hand side as you enter, I want you to build a menorah or a lampstand. And I want you to construct it in such a way. Look at verse, I think, it's, yeah, here it is, verse 20, chapter 25, verse 37. The lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. What does that mean, to give light? The lamps or the cups were adjusted and built in such a way so when the priests lit the light... Lit the little candles, and they kept them going. Remember, day and night, day and night, day and night. What happened was that the light of the menorah shone forth 
not on the wall that was next to it on the left-hand side, but it shone forth across the room to what is on the right-hand side. And what's on the right-hand side? It's called the bread of the presence. It's called the bread of the presence. So it's just not seven candles there kind of lighting the whole place indiscriminately, but it is the specific work of God in the instructions when you build this, build it in such a way that these cups, when they are lit, reflect light forward, forward onto the table of showbread. So it's not just like, hey, turning on a light bulb. Hey, look what's in here. It is God focusing and bathing his light, the light of his presence upon the bread, which is to say what? That Israel is dwelling in the light of the presence of God. That's what this is all about. That's what God was showing in the holy place with the menorah or the lampstand shining, if you would, in front or to the right, you know, you get the structure here, and the showbread being illumined. Without the menorah, there is no light in this. This is a little room that, hey, we ain't got no light in here. It's the only light in the tabernacle as you enter the building itself, the holy place and then the most holy place. And so what was in front of the menorah? The table of showbread. And that represented, you remember, God's people, that God's people were to dwell in the light of his presence. See, that means that God was showing that his people were to live in the light of his presence as mediated by the priest. The light would not shine unless it was made, it was maintained rather, morning and night by the priest. They would come in and trim the, the uh, what do you call that on top of the oil, the um, yeah, but trim the wick and get that hard stuff off. And they would pour the oil into the center shaft. And as they poured it into the center shaft, the three shafts on each side of it would fill with oil. Remember that. Isn't it interesting what Jesus said in John 15? The center of the whatever you have to pull. I suppose you'll have to just go ahead, and go ahead and read that. Now, you see, God was recreating his Genesis purpose. And showing what it was meant to be with the light of the menorah. That in Genesis, man was to live in the light of God's presence. And so as a type, having man after man having fallen, God shows as a type, I'm still doing this. I'm still doing it. But now I'm doing it as a prototype or as a foreshadowing of the real light who will be coming into the world in whom all my people will be illumined and all my people will live in the continual bathing light of my presence in this one man who will be my tabernacle, who himself will be my bread. John chapter The bread of life. I am the bread of life. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. John chapter 6. Let me try to finish it up this way. Even though Israel, Adam failed, even though Israel, like Adam, failed, the light of menorah pictured the day when God's people, it anticipated in and guaranteed another day that God's people would enjoy the light of his continual presence within them by the spirit. Listen to this prayer, the ironic prayer. You've heard it before in Numbers 6, 24, 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. 
The Lord make his face to shine light upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. When is this prayer fulfilled? It's fulfilled in Jesus. And then when is it fulfilled completely for us? In Revelation 21. With that prayer in mind, listen to these words in Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and they will see his face. May his face shine upon you. May the face of God in Christ shine upon you. We're going to have that. We're going to dwell in that eternal light of the presence of God in Christ one day. 1611, a psalm. In your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand of pleasures forevermore. You see, this is the star. And I'll just conclude with this. There's a few more things you can look at. This is the star. This is the light that God was showing the light of his joy of having a people in the birth of his son. Amen. That's why Jesus says, my joy I give to you. Not as the world gives, I give you what? My joy. The joy that is in God among the three persons of God, each one enjoying each other's company and presence forever. That's the joy now that we have among us. That's the light of the star that Magi, the Magi saw and that is beginning to announce the birth of the new creation, the beginning of God now literally fulfilling his Genesis purpose. Next week we'll continue.